Welcome to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. And now your hosts, Tim Cole and Jeff Lewis. Welcome, everyone. I'm Jeff Lewis. And I'm Tim Kowal. In each episode of the California Appellate Law Podcast, we provide trial attorneys with legal analysis and practice tips from an appellate perspective. Both of us are appellate specialists who split our practices evenly between trial and appellate courts. We both work directly with trial attorneys to prepare cases for appeal. In this podcast, we offer some of that appellate perspective on various issues that arise in trial court and on appeal. Right. And on this week's episode, we'll be discussing cases finding that orders generally considered not appealable to be appealable, such as demur orders, summary judgment orders, and statements of decision. And at the end of the episode, we'll discuss some other appellate news, including a legislative proposal that would give the state's chief justice more control over the COVID-19 situation and other future emergencies. So the catalyst for this week's episode is a decision out of the 4th District, Division 1, out of San Diego. The case is Brown versus Butler. Citations to all cases discussed today may be found in the show notes. It's an unpublished case, but it contains a warning to practitioners that orders sustaining demurs may be treated as appealable. Yeah, this was a wild case. It was very unusual, both in terms of its fact pattern and procedural posture. posture. Uh, The the plaintiff in the case filed a a complaint against the uh, Church of Mormon and alleged a conspiracy to spy, kidnap, harm him. The conspiracy involved male prostitutes, pimps, devil worshipers, and gang members. And um, at the end of the the day, the Court of Appeal found that the case was frivolous and imposed uh, monetary sanctions of $15,000 against the appellate attorney who represented the client seeking to appeal a dismissal of some of these theories. And so this case is very unusual because of the facts and also because the appellate lawyer was sanctioned. You don't see that too often. And uh, also in terms of the, um, the demur uh, order being appealable, what did you think about this case, Tim? Well, I, uh, the first thing I thought was interesting is that the sanctions awarded were uh, against the attorney only. Right. The, the order was not against the client. So the the court seemed to be sending a pretty clear message that it's the attorney's duty to independently review the sufficiency and the plausibility of the allegations and not just take uh, the client's word for it. And and as a secondary basis for imposing those sanctions, uh, the uh, appellate lawyer was uh, sanctioned for citing outside the record. You and I both know when you uh, make an argument or you cite the facts in a brief, you're supposed to cite to the appellate record and uh, although we don't have the appellate record, the court made it pretty clear here that the uh, appellate attorney cited outside the uh, appellate record pretty extensively. Yeah, the case obviously seems to be a warning against pleading frivolous conspiracy theories, but there's another cautionary lesson here in that uh, because in, in the court's apparent desire to reach sanctions and to impose sanctions against the attorney, the Court of Appeal held that a dismissal order on a demur is appealable. Yeah, the court where it really went out of its way. I mean, as we know, orders sustaining a demur are not considered appealable. The plaintiff must usually await entry of judgment of dismissal. And while courts may treat demur orders as appealable, it is generally couched in terms of discretion, which is to be exercised to safeguard the right to appeal. 
but in this decision, there, there wasn't any mention of discretion. The court simply held that a written, signed, and filed order sustaining a demur is appealable, period. I think this means that trial lawyers should now assume that dismissal orders are immediately appealable. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, I agree. I agree. You should file a notice of appeal in response to a dismissal order to preserve uh, issues for appeal and uh, avoid the risk that at some point um, uh, some court disagrees that a judgment is required later on to vest uh, appellate jurisdiction. And, uh, you know, you brought to my attention, Tim, this case, uh, the Fidelity National Home Warranty cases arising out of the 4th Appellate District Division 1, uh, which concerned a class action, a dismissal order in a class action, and whether or not the dismissal order was or was not an appealable judgment. And uh, there's some reading in that case that really gave me some pause about whether cases that are not class actions uh, uh, have appealable orders, uh, even uh, absent a judgment. I've really, uh, that, that case was a real eye opener for me. Yeah, the holding in that case confirmed that dismissal orders were generally, generally appealable, but in that case, because in a class action, notice was required to the class and notice had not been given in that case, therefore that the dismissal uh, failed to meet the, the statutory elements of a dismissal for the particular uh, procedural requirements of a class action. And so that's what, what defeated the appealability uh, in that case. Yeah, uh, I appreciate you bringing that case to my attention because it really uh, has opened my eyes. Well, and speaking of certain orders that are generally not appealable, sometimes being found appealable, <laughs> I've, I've seen this uh, in the context of statements of decision. A statement of decision, as most practitioners know, is issued following a bench trial they're issued pursuant to Code of Civil Procedure, Section 632. Statements of decision are normally followed by a judgment, uh, and the appeal lies from the judgment. The cases routinely mention that a statement of decision is not itself appealable, except that sometimes it is appealable. <laughs> right, uh, right. The key California Supreme case on this point is Allen versus American Honda Motor, Motor Company uh, from 2007. And that case deals primarily with when the 60-day deadline begins to file the notice of appeal. But in that case, the trial court only entered a statement of decision and a minute order, but not a judgment. Right. So the Supreme Court uh, gives some guidance in the Allen case on when a statement of decision may be appealable. Unfortunately, in my view, the guidance that the court gave was not entirely clear. What I found very curious was that the court says that statements of decision may be deemed appealable in the court's discretion, but given that appeals are jurisdictional, injecting an element of discretion seems to me precarious. The general rule is that a statement of decision is not appealable, but if the Court of Appeal decides that it's appealable in your case, then your appeal is doomed. So litigants who want to preserve their right to appeal probably should treat a, state, a statement of decision as an appealable order. So who then is this? Is the court addressing when it talks about a general rule that statements of decision are not appealable? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a good question. And the the Allen case went on. Excuse me. The Allen case went on to conclude that the statement of decision was not appealable in that case. As far as we can tell from the opinion, the statement of decision was signed, filed, and explained the trial court's final disposition of the case. Right. So normally you would you would think that that uh, the court would probably go on to find that 
uh, in its discretion. The statement of decision uh, was appealable, but that's not what it held. It, uh, it held that it, not only was it not appealable, but the court used the word error in saying that the, the court of appeal committed error uh, when it found the statement of decision was appealable. It didn't say it was an abuse of discretion to treat it as appealable, but rather that it was an error. So my tip for the wary is where a statement of decision has all the earmarks of finality, a practitioner should treat it as appealable. If the order is in writing, decides the claims, and leaves nothing else for the parties to do, you should assume that it may be appealed. And if a judgment does not timely follow, assume that you have to appeal the statement of decision. Right. And so in some cases, you might have multiple notices of appeal that you filed just to cover your bases and then later on dismiss or consolidate those various appeals just to make sure you've covered all your appellate, uh, appellate bases. Right. And depending on uh, what the order is, you might also need to consider taking up a writ. So we talked about, uh, Alan, how have subsequent decisions dealt with the appealability of statements of decisions? Well, not entirely consistently. A few years ago, I moved to dismiss an appeal on the ground that the appealable order was the statement of decision, uh, which had been issued over a year before. The Court of Appeal denied my motion in an unpublished decision, and it concluded that the statement of decision was merely tentative, and thus it was not appealable. What about some more recent cases dealing with this appealability issue? Well, uh, we have uh, the Valero Refining Company case uh, that was uh, issued recently. That uh, that was the case involving a notice of entry of judgment being sent to the wrong address. I guess uh, trial counsel had changed their address midway uh, through the litigation. And when I read that case, it looked like the Court of Appeal held that because the trial court had sent notice of entry of judgment to the old outdated address, that did not trigger a 60-day period. Uh, I wasn't sure if there was something in this case about a statement of decision. There's also a recent decision out of the first district, Division 4, that treated an order granting uh, a summary judgment as appealable without waiting on the, uh, the entry of the, of the following judgment. That case was Lowry versus Kindred Healthcare. Uh, there's also another recent decision out of the sixth district. That one treated an order sustaining a demur as appealable because it was followed by a judgment. That case is Wynn versus Ellen. Interestingly, the third district also recently treated an order sustaining a demur as appealable, but this case stated that it was because the order was not followed by a judgment. And that case is Weimer versus Nation Star Mortgage. So I got the sense from reading both of those cases that the reasons following the word because maybe were not the actual reasons for the court finding that the order was appealable. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's something more to do with free flowing interests of justice or something like that. Uh, Based on a past experience, Jeff, I wanted to propose a hypo and ask if you think it suggests the Court of Appeal could effectively deny appellate review no matter what the appellate does. So here's the hypo. Defendant has been sued by plaintiff. After filing an answer, defendant realizes it has a cross-claim against plaintiff that must be raised in a compulsory cross-complaint. So defendant files a motion for leave to file the compulsory cross-complaint. The trial judge is supposed to grant that uh, just as of right, but the trial court decides to deny the motion. Unless the order is reversed, defendant will risk forever losing its cross-claim. What do you think defendant should do, Jeff? Well, the order does not dispose of all claims against the defendant because you still have the complaint hanging around. 
So it's not immediately appealable. The defendant has to wait around for a final judgment or try a discretionary writ. Okay. So I agree. The order appears to be non-appealable. And let's say the court of appeal denies the writ as uh, it has the discretion to do and as it typically does. So a defendant now has to wait until the end of the case to appeal so it can get its cross-complaint filed. So the parties litigate for the next year. Eventually, plaintiff decides its case is a loser and files a voluntary dismissal. So now what does defendant do? A voluntary dismissal is not a judgment and is not appealable. There are many cases that hold that. The order denying leave to file a cross-complaint is now over a year old. So if ever it was appealable, the right to appeal it is now expired. So what, what options are left to the defendant appellant in that case? Yeah, it sounds like two options. One, uh, that sounds like a great explanation of good cause to grant the writ petition, that possibility uh, as good cause for why the Court of Appeals should grant the writ petition. Another possibility, I suppose, is if you get denied uh, the ability to file a cross-complaint, maybe you could just file a new action. I agree. I thought, I thought of that possibility, too. That's why I, I, I do say that, uh, that it's only arguable that the defendant may, uh, may forever lose the right to file that claim. Of course, the defendant will have to wait and see what the next trial judge does when they see that, that claim filed. And supposing the, the new defendant files a demur on the basis that it was already adjudicated and that it was required to be filed as a compulsory cross-complaint in the previous action. And there might be a, uh, a neat way for the trial judge to get that new case off its docket. Right. We have some other recent cases concerning demurs, don't we, Jeff? Right. Uh, I sent you the Coleman case, which is unreported, and it's a case involving an improper, uh, but it's a good lesson in uh, making sure you have a complete appellate record. Uh, in this particular case, I think both the, the, the complaint and the demur were not included in the appellate record. And so in the Coleman case, uh, the Court of Appeal uh, basically didn't hear the merits of the case found that the issues were forfeited because the appellant did not carry his burden of making sure there's an adequate record on appeal. Yeah, I saw that. That seemed to me like a harsh result. There are certain documents that are deemed part of the appellate record just by operation of the rules of court, like um, trial exhibits are a good example. Uh, and other documents, uh, the rules require that the court must include, um, though I know pleadings are not among them, but the court, it seems the court could have reviewed the complaint um, uh, on its own authority, couldn't it have? We see that all the time, especially in unpublished decisions where uh, the court, when it wants to reach an issue, uh, reads uh, additional documents or finds the documents it needs. Have you seen any, any cases that discuss any limiting principles on that? Does it have to be, I assume it has to be contained within the court's, the trial court's record, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and matters subject to ju judicial notice. I assume that would, that would pretty much constitute the universe of anything that the Court of Appeal could look at. Correct. It would be extraordinary to go outside those two areas. I think we had a couple other cases that we wanted to talk about, didn't we, Jeff? Uh, there was the Dumas case. I can't remember if that's one you sent me or I sent you. This is a second district case. It was published. And uh, it concerns this new meet-confer requirement or, or recent meet-confer requirement regarding demurs. Uh, there's a rule now that requires uh, defendant's counsel to meet-confer with plaintiff's counsel in advance of filing a demur. Uh, but there doesn't seem any real 
penalty to not uh, following uh, that rule because in the Dumas case, it said it confirmed the statutory language that the failure to meet and confer is not grounds for uh, denial uh, of or uh, overruling the demur. That seemed to be the upshot that that we had reached in our office about uh, when we saw some demurs that were filed um, after pretty pretty scant meet and confer efforts and reading the the statute closely didn't seem to provide any real enforcement mechanism. Uh, You know, I haven't seen this done, but I suspect a judge who feels strongly about this meet and confer requirement might uh, just use his calendar calendar powers to order a matter off calendar until the parties do a a more meaningful meet and confer without uh, deciding the merits of the demur. You think there's a way for a... uh for a plaintiff to suggest that possibility to the trial judge? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Just question whether the, the that judge wants to clog his docket up by having a demur appear twice on a calendar, once when the meet confer was insufficient and then come back a second time. And would you just put that in the opposition? For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then uh, I think the last case we had talking about some of these issues was uh, the Renfro case. Right. This was another improper case. It's, it's unreported. But I, I wanted to bring this case up because it involved the use of the Judicial Council form notice of appeal. I've seen this a few times where checking the wrong box on this uh, Judicial Council form or using the wrong words, inadvertently narrowing the basis for the appeal can result in a finding by the Court of Appeal that appellant has actually forfeited uh, an argument. So for this reason, I try never to use the judicial counsel forms um, because I find just doing it on pleading paper, a notice of appeal, gives you a little more flexibility to use very broad language in terms of what orders are being appealed from. What was the wrong box that the appellant checked in the Renfro case? The uh, appellant had the option of uh, indicating he was appealing from a judgment of dismissal following an order sustaining a demur or other. And here, he checked that he was uh, appealing other. And because he said other rather than a judgment of dismissal following the uh, order sustaining a demur, uh, the court construed uh, the notice of appeal very narrowly. And this appellant was not able to have the merits of his argument really heard by the court of appeal. That's interesting because the the longstanding policy is that courts of appeal are to construe notices of appeal liberally, correct? It is. Uh, I suspect the fact that this uh, particular appellant was uh, improper may have affected the outcome here. Okay, that uh, wraps up uh, the uh, portion of our podcast where we were discussing uh, recent cases. There's some recent news coming out of the courts of appeal that we want to discuss. Uh, Tim? Right. There's a, there's a new assembly bill number, uh, it's Assembly Bill 3336. It proposes to give the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court unilateral authority to issue statewide emergency orders concerning trial court operations. This, uh, this proposed bill would, in- would include extending statutory deadlines. Perhaps this would make calculating deadlines during a crisis less daunting than, it, <clears throat> than practitioners are seeing now, or perhaps not. I've been asked by some clients to to calculate when their statutory deadlines to file post-trial motions are, to file notices of, notices of appeal, and uh, it is it is something of a uh, of a task to go through and, and look at the specific trial court local uh, orders and the the district court of appeal orders and uh, find out exactly which extensions apply, what orders have been extended. 
how long they've been extended for, if the extensions have been further extended. So having, having a single, um, single source of the extension orders uh, certainly has some desirability to it. Yeah, it's, the situation's a mess. I'd be curious uh, who and for what reason uh, anybody votes against this, uh, some, this proposed assembly bill because it sounds like a great idea to me. So uh, another bit of news that caught my eye uh, this week was a $40,000 sanctions order issued by the uh, 4th Appellate District Division Three down there in Orange County uh, in a case uh, entitled Blumenthal versus Fletcher Jones. Uh, that's a pretty big sanctions uh, order and very unusual. And there's some language in there about uh, the appellate lawyers uh, asserting frivolous arguments. And uh, that, uh, that case caught my eye. There was a case that caught my eye out of the uh, Supreme Court. It was an order dismissing review of a case. And it made me think that before petitioning for Supreme Court review, you should beware of getting what you ask for. The case is Galen versus Redfin Corporation. And in that case, the Supreme Court had issued a grant and hold order way back in 2014. The court recently dismissed review, and that's six years that have just been wasted to the litigants. Right. Um, and uh, lastly, here's an appellate tip for appealing summary judgments. There was a recent case out of the first district, second uh, division. Uh, the case is in Salaco versus Hope Lutheran Church. That case reversed a summary judgment and, find, uh, and found that there was error in denying the non-moving party's motion to conduct additional discovery. If you are opposing summary judgment, always try to find something you need in discovery and file a motion seeking a continuance. If the request is denied and summary judgment is granted, the Insulaco decision may help you. Yeah, that's it. That's a great tip. That's a great tip. Um, in other news, uh, the Second District Division Seven this past week had a video oral argument where you could watch uh, the argument by video. I think that's something that's been around for a while in the fourth appellate district down in Orange County and uh, in the ninth circuit. This is something new in the second district. It's just division seven, but I'm hoping uh, eventually the other divisions of second district will uh, also have uh, video arguments. I've heard from some, some clients that they, uh, they enjoy tuning in and watching the oral arguments from their computer, from the comfort of their own home. Right, right. Well, I think that wraps us up for this episode of the California Appellate Law Podcast. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. You have just listened to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. For more information about the cases discussed in today's episode, our hosts, and other episodes, visit the California Appellate Law Podcast website at calpodcast.com. That's calpodcast.com. Thanks to Jonathan Caro for our intro music. Thank you for listening, and please join us again.